Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. This is an episode that we knew from day one we were going to do. And after 30 odd episodes, we're finally here. Yay. (laughs) You know, better late than never, right? That's true. This is not surprisingly a very big topic. Well, technically, every topic we do is a big topic, but abortion and abortion access in America is particularly caught up in this swamp of complicated political and legal minefield. Other topics, we feel like we can do an intro episode now. Like for the past few episodes, we did like intro episodes to big topics, and then we can build off those using future episodes a bit by bit. But abortion is something that we need just like a long extended time to talk about. Yeah, we're going to break this one into a two-parter so that we can make sure to give this fair and sufficient coverage because we have a lot to talk about on this topic. Neither of us are abortion experts, so we reached out to one. My name is Joanne Rosen. I'm a senior lecturer and associate director of the Center for Law and the Public's Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. I'm very excited that we have Professor Joanne Rosen joining us today. She is super thoughtful around abortion topics and privacy and issues around sexuality and sort of all of these big, juicy topics that are so important for our public health. Anyway, just really excited to have her here today. She's super thoughtful and is going to really help us dig into this issue. Yeah. As we know from past episodes, like the law in public health is really a hand in hand thing because a lot of times we need the law to sort of do public health. And a lot of times, maybe we need to break down a few old laws to, to do public health. So the law and public health is something that is very intertwined. Previously, my, my formal training, my most intensive training is as an attorney. And so it was eye-opening to me to see all of the ways in which, in terms of abortion, the law is an impediment. The law acts contrary to ensuring and protecting public health with respect to sexual and reproductive health generally and abortion in particular. So I'm quite passionate about this. What the law taketh away, the law can also give it. So for our listeners who are very law inclined, like you want to be future lawyers, public health law is a very good field to to pursue. And we'll probably talk more about that in the future. Absolutely. And we've had the benefit in the past of having Dr. Alex McCourt on mm-hmm. the show when we were talking about preemption. And you know he's also a public health lawyer and researcher. And so we have a benefit in our center and our school of having a lot of really great, intelligent folks who think about this intersection between the law and the public's health. We actually have a center called the Center for the Law and the Public's Health. Yes, we're very incredibly fortunate and honored to have her on the show. But before we start digging into the topic, we need to mention at the top of the show that even though we use the term woman, we realize that it's not just obviously cisgender women that may need access to abortion. Right. There are maybe people who are non-binary or transgender, people who may be born as the female gender, but identify in a different way, who have uteruses and may need access to abortion or family planning services. Right. So I just want to say that at the top of the show, because throughout the show, we're going to be using the term woman, but we know that this is something that's more encompassing. So my original idea was let's do a history of abortion in America. But I was soon disabused of that notion because there's no way that's possible to do in 20 to 25 (laughs) minutes. But the one question I've always had in mind regarding abortion is how did essentially a medical procedure get so entangled, I guess, complicated in this, in laws and politics? Like it's, I don't think you see this for any other medical procedure, but it's just something that's been so, I wish I have a bigger GRE vocabulary to describe this, but it's so (laughs) entangled is, is what I'm trying to say. It is very interesting the way we think about abortion being a medical legal issue as opposed to just a medical issue. 
it's really a unique situation that we don't see with other health conditions. And at the end of the day, being pregnant or not is sort of a biological Mm -hmm. and health-related thing. But there are so many other factors that play into this. And it's not just a a simple cut and dry like an appendicitis or other health issue. Yeah, but it should be. It should just be something like, this is a service that I need for X, Y, and Z reason. And I'm going to go to a provider to seek the service. But it's obviously not that simple, as we know. So anyway, to start answer this question, and thankfully, tons have been written about this already, so we, need to, we don't need to do like research from scratch. When we posed this question to Professor Rosen, she brought up that there's a very famous opinion for perhaps the most famous abortion Supreme Court case, which, as many people know, Roe v. Wade, it contains extensive discussion about this in one of the opinions that one of the justices wrote. There was this lengthy historical treatise, in effect, in the Roe versus Wade opinion on the role of abortion historically is because the Supreme Court justice that wrote that opinion, Justice Blackman, had been general counsel at the Mayo Clinic prior to becoming a justice, a judge. And he went back off to the Mayo Clinic and spent quite a lot of time researching the history of abortion in the Mayo Clinic's library. So what are the major points that were in Justice Blackman's opinion? So he said many things, too many for us to list one by one, but <laughs> but here's the takeaway. Abortion has been a- around for as long as human beings have walked the earth and been pregnant, right? Not all pregnancies happen when people want them to, are desired, back until roughly around the mid-1800s, abortion at the earlier stages of pregnancy was typically not a crime, wasn't prohibited under common law. And by the earliest stages, the way that it was dealt with in law is that abortion prior to quickening was not a crime. And quickening is the point at which fetal movement can be detected by the pregnant woman. And it roughly corresponds to about four months of pregnancy. It was largely believed that prior to quickening, the fetus was not animated. It wasn't a separate, distinct entity. It was part of the mother. So prior to that point, early in pregnancy, abortion was not criminalized. So abortions, it certainly has its stigmatization and barriers. It was it was like nowhere near the level of impediment that we see today. Today's barrier were just infinitely higher compared to the barriers back in the day, even though today's abortion is a lot safer. I think it's so interesting how the criminal perceptions and or the legal perceptions have changed over time, because if you think about now in 2022, the technological advances we've made with regard to medicine, the development of different ways that a pregnancy could be ended with very minimal, if almost no risk to the woman, much, much safer now than it was 200 years ago or even 150 years ago. And so I just find it so interesting that we have a much more, for lack of a better term, like Puritan view Mm -hmm. of approaching abortion now than we did sort of further back in time when we didn't have these same technologies. And and there were some substantial physical risks, Mm -hmm. health risks for folks. We're not in that place. We have very, very safe options. We're just working to make them as hard as possible to access. And I think throwing back to what we've talked about before on the show, like a lot of folks who are pro-life really are 
pro-birth. Yes. And then we don't provide those supportive services that folks need. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting slightly off topic, <laughs> but it's it's a really complicated issue. It is. And I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent, but I just this is something that I found incredibly interesting reflecting upon my experience. No, I did not get an abortion. That's not what I mean. But I am an immigrant. And growing up in Taiwan, like abortion is also a very complicated issue in Taiwan. But perception that I had as a kid and growing up in Taiwan is that even though there was stigma associated with abortion, the stigma associated with teen pregnancy is like 10 times higher. So abortion, while it's still like taboo, but the fact that oh, your your teenagers are having sex, like uh, your teenage daughter is pregnant, like that is so much more shameful to the point where you wouldn't even think twice. Like if your daughter who is quote unquote not an adult yet, if she were to get pregnant, like you're getting an abortion. Sort of building off that cultural aspect that you're talking about just recently, I'm, I'm not going to say the names of the countries because I don't remember, but two sort of largely Catholic mm-hmm. Countries in South America and Southern North America both decriminalized abortion very recently. But there's a, a recognition that we need to provide safe access to abortion for individuals who may be pregnant and want to terminate that pregnancy. Yeah. And it's just so surprising, impressive. You know, you could list a whole bunch of attributes that these countries that are very, very, very Catholic Mm -hmm. are moving away from the punitive aspects and trying for more supportive approaches to this, which I wish we could see the same thing happening here. I know. So it was a a mini culture shock when I learned about the landscape for abortion here. I was like, oh, wow, this is like not what I experienced in Taiwan. But anyway, that's a little bit of tangent. So now we get to hear about what happens next. In the 1850s or 1860s, there was a very strong campaign led by uh, one physician in particular named Horatio Storer, as well as some others. But there was a campaign at that point to criminalize abortion at all stages of pregnancy and to get physicians to join in this campaign and to try to outlaw or prohibit abortion. This was for a number of reasons. One was professional self-interest. So abortion prior to quickening was not uncommon, and the practitioners were midwives or homeopaths, almost entirely women, many times Indigenous or Black women. Obstetrics and gynecology was a burgeoning field at that point, and there was a drive to edge out these non-medically trained midwives and homeopaths who also played roles in prenatal care and childbirth. So Dr. Storer and others wanted to move the care of pregnant women outside of this non-medical midwives, homeopaths domain and make it exclusively the professional work of doctors. So professional self-interest. So did you anticipate that the medical establishment played a key role in this? I know we did the interview already and we know the answer, but you know, prior to speaking <laughs> with Professor Rosen, I did not expect this. Like, Was that something that you knew already or expected? To be honest, I was very surprised. I thought that sort of religious movements would have had a much larger role in this, but after we talked with Professor Rosen, and we heard more about what she was saying about this topic, it really sort of made sense, right? You have a developing medical establishment, medical program. They want to sort of establish themselves as the knowers and the doers and the keepers of information. And so 
you know, it's the same thing that we saw when we were talking about some, you know, I think maybe in the hand washing bonus episode about sort of doctors pushing midwives out of the yeah. out of the way for birthing and, and the impacts that that had on infant and maternal mortality with the hand washing and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, it's it's at the end of the day, knowing who was the medical establishment at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Predominantly white males. Of course. <laughs> it's not super surprising to me upon reflection that they would have this role and be pushing back against it because, you know, dudes like to be in charge <laughs> things. And I'm going to pause there because yeah. this is not a bonus and I don't want to get too spicy. <laughs> don't worry. We will have a bonus about this. So please stay tuned to that on, on Monday if you want our spicy takes. And regarding your comment about both of us, I think, thought this would be a more of a religious thing, but there's actually uh, religious groups that wanted to make sure women had access to safe abortion. Yeah, I was really surprised by that also. But there was, interestingly, there were clergy who banded together and tried to help women find safe ways to get abortions prior to Roe. There were horrible cases of women bleeding out and dying as a result of poorly performed abortions. And so there was a recognition that if you really respected life, you wanted to keep these pregnant women who were seeking abortions safe. There wasn't always uniform religious opposition to abortion. There had been clergy who considered it part of their work to help these pregnant women who were seeking abortions find a safe way to get abortion. So obviously, the medical establishment was not the only reason why abortion was starting to get criminalized during the 1860s. And this part is not discussed at all in Roe versus Wade, but it's very well documented in a lot of historical work by scholars. And in an essay that Dr. Storer wrote in around 1865, there were waves of immigration to the United States, and there was a recognition that the birth rate among U.S.-born white women was far below the birth rate of immigrant and non-white women. And there was a concern that if that pattern in birth rates continued, the demography of the country would change and there would no longer be a majority white country. There would no longer be dominance of whites or to put it into the terms that we use today, it was essentially there would no longer be this kind of white supremacist demographic portrait of the country. And part of the reason it was understood that the birth rate among white women in the mid-1850s was declining was that abortion was being practiced and contraception to interfere with the beginning of a pregnancy. So it was really a desire to ensure that the higher birth rate among immigrant and non-white women did not result in this shift in the demographics and under sort of like change the racial composition of the country, that there was this move to criminalize or ban abortion at all stages. There is this quote, again, from one of Dr. Storer's essays, as we seek to expand civilization, South and West, this is the quote, shall that civilization, quote, be filled by our own children or those of aliens, bracket, I'm saying the bracket, non-white. This is a question our women must answer. Upon their loins depends the future destiny of the nation. So, Yes, it's a control of bodies. And it sounds almost like an Aryan precept to me. Upon their bracket, white loins depends the future destiny of the nation. 
I think oftentimes when we discuss these very political topics and statements like this is about white supremacy, this is about men controlling women's body, I think it's very easy for some people to be like, oh, that's just your interpretation. But no, no, it's very explicit. <laughs> like they make this incredibly explicit uh, when you find the primary sources and you find their actual quote. Um, there's no doubt that this is about white supremacy and this is about the patriarchy and this is about controlling women. It's really interesting thinking about the elements of white supremacist culture and how that can play into a whole bunch of different factors or elements. And the idea that we need to restrict or prevent access to abortions by white women so that as immigrants and other global majorities are coming into the U.S., we can sort of retain our majority in this country. And it's just this is one of the issues, areas in which I think it is almost like a way to help people who don't understand the concept of white supremacy see what it looks like. It was actually in writing. Like, what does it mean when you are troubled by the disparity in birth rates and you think that we may have more children being born to non-white people and you therefore want to ensure that white women using their loins, get those numbers back up. You know, reflecting on your comment about sort of going to the source, like this is something we still struggle with, right? It is, you know, we have top headlines that are clickbait or, you know, we see a tweet and assume it's true rather than going to the actual source. And there's no excuse in 2022 for not finding the original source material. You hear a story that somebody said something, it's probably on video right, or recorded. Yeah. Like go go watch the original clip or you know whatever happened, but it pisses me off yeah. <laughs> that we <laughs> we just hear something that we don't like and we say, "Well, that's your interpretation. That's what you think this means." But it's actually written yeah, out like very Joanne gave us like so many great details on like what exactly the thinking was behind this and why it was important and this that is legit white supremacy. Yeah. And I don't understand their logic, which I guess is a good thing because, you know, that means I'm not a white supremacist. But I what was he? He was like, how would how would that how would criminalizing abortion? Wouldn't you want to legalize abortion because it will make things safer for, you know. But anyway, I don't know. I don't understand his logic. No, no. This is right. This is my uh -huh. attempt at understanding, which may be flawed because, again, like I don't subscribe to these these um, elements. But. The idea being, if the medical profession had immense control over who could have an abortion and under what circumstances, then they could ensure that white women could not get abortions and women of other ethnic and racial backgrounds could get abortions because they were they were starting to see the birth rates being impacted and white women or you know white individuals with uteruses right. yeah, you know yeah. how <laughs> recognizing yeah. these this complicated issue people who might become pregnant who were white were not having children at the same rate as you know people who might become pregnant of other racial and ethnic backgrounds and the concern was that There'd be fewer white people and way more majority, way way more of the global majority, which was a minority in the U.S., and then we wouldn't have retain our sort of supremacist pieces. And so the criminalizing part was really to punish white women for having an abortion mm -hmm. so that they would continue giving birth. Even after your explanation, I still don't quite get it. Because it's, it's like I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to 
conceptualize what yeah you know joanne was explaining to us and but you know at the end of the day because we don't subscribe to this belief i guess we'll never understand what, why he's what he's going for yeah. but yeah like it's very explicit i think it'll make hitler blush even just by how explicit it is but oh man we need to do a whole a whole we've talked about this before a whole separate episode on white supremacy because the nazis learned yes from the u.s from the u.s in terms of slavery and jim crow era laws and actually cast by isabella wilkerson which we've talked about before amazing book but like even the nazis were like whoa the u.s has taken it too far on some of these <laughs> pieces yeah so we need to talk about this in history books yeah uh we could probably do a whole episode about censorship because that's oh, that's yeah. been on the news but anyway so this is what happened like before it was taboo but this was this was a concerted effort by the medical establishment to actively criminalize abortion and their reasoning is something that you know none of us understand but it's very successful like they were able to i don't want to you know this is probably the wrong phrase they were able to start a trend if you will of getting states to be like yep this is a criminalized activity uh we the state are quote unquote interested in the well-being of the 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 unborn child quote unquote and they started to say, yeah, this is, they imply that this is equivalent to murder. And a lot of states starting to do this. And then what happens after? They were moving to criminalize. And in fact, from the 1860s on, most states then began to prohibit all abortions throughout any point of pregnancy. There was a very, very, very long period in which abortion was criminalized. If you read people who had means getting into the 1960s could fly to Europe, you'd have to fly all the way to Europe to get an abortion that was provided by a trained physician. There were unlegal, sort of illegal abortions that were taking place and the sort of, you know, the was often described as back alley. And with the Supreme Court having heard the recent Mississippi 15-week ban case, there have been a lot of really good articles, either written for the first time or republishing older articles on what it was like prior to Roe versus Wade to be fi- trying to get an abortion. Do you know what this reminds me of? In the Prohibition episode, we talked about how you can't just ban something and expect it to go away. Like that's like saying from now on, all crime is illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We've talked about this before. And so I'll just briefly say, if you ban an activity without addressing the reasons why people might want to engage in that activity, the demand side of things, it doesn't matter what you do to the supply. The demand is still there and people are still going to do the thing, engage in the thing, whatever that, whatever the thing is, whether it's drugs, alcohol, abortion so dumb yeah and uh we see that actually with texas people have to leave state lines or cross state lines to get abortion because texas had the abortion restriction bill so we see that now like the demand didn't just disappear when you prohibit something so this is the sort of origin of the movement to criminalize abortion and we haven't even got to roe v wade this is 100 (laughs) years before roe v wade and so we're going to save that for next time and we will get into the more moral aspects uh, about abortions in the show after the show public health plus because there's no way we can do that without getting spicy so um stay tuned for that which will be released on monday as we said at the start of this episode this is a huge topic and we're gonna have to break it into pieces professor rosen will be back with us uh, for a part two to talk about Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And we may have an additional episode as well, depending on how much we can get through. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krifasi. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page and you can find the link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.